John chapter 13. The Gospel of John chapter 13. It's good to have everyone this morning. It's a special morning for us here at Reformed Baptist Church. After so long a time, this morning we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together as a church. And we thank the Lord for enabling us over these last months to keep one heart and one mind. And we thank Him for His goodness, His grace, and His mercy in guiding and directing us all the way. John chapter 13 is really a special text for me. And I'll use the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 49, to describe the reason why. He said, Remember the word unto thy servant, upon which thou hast caused me to hope. Psalm 119, 49, Remember the word unto thy servant, upon which thou hast caused me to hope. The psalmist is not implying that God can forget but he is trusting in God's unwavering faithfulness to help the psalmist remember the word upon which God had caused him to hope. It's not a plea or a prayer of one who is yet, Paul called a babe in Christ, who is yet feeding upon the milk of the word and who is yet unskillful, It is the words of one who has lived long enough to experience the power and hope of God's Word. Thirty-two years ago this month, in 1989, as a young pastor, this text was the text I preached from as my first Lord's Supper as a pastor. 32 years ago, I first opened opened this passage of Scripture and preached it to our church at First Baptist Church in Heilbronn, Germany. And for 32 years, I've lived in the light of this passage of Scripture. And often I've returned to this upper chamber in hopes that I might learn more clearly its blessed truths that I might be weighed, so to say, in their balance, so as if to know if I've truly grown in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, they say the surest way to prove the quality and value of something is if it can stand the test of time. Well, surely God's Word has stood the test of time from generation to generation. Beloved, there's nothing more blessed in the believer's life than as he pilgrims through this world with Christ to be able, like the psalmist, to go back to those words, those promises of God, which God has caused him to hope in and to learn something new from them, to understand and realize and to see how those truths develop in his own life and in the lives of believers and how that divine truth begins to generate in the lives of God's people and begins to bring forth fruit. 
unto the glory of God. And so it is with this 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. Every time I refer back to this upper chamber, I'm greatly humbled by it because the spirit of love and unity, humility, despair, brokenheartedness, which filled that chamber that evening, humbles me as a child of God when I realize that much of what happened in this upper chamber happens in our lives as Christians. Though surely no day could have been considered normal or ordinary for those who walked with Christ as He walked amongst men. The countless miracles, sermons, the healings, the private teachings, Every day as they walked with Christ, as He walked amongst men, must have been extraordinary and amazing in every way. If you are considered walking with Christ every day, the lessons to be learned, sometimes we have a hard time grasping or understanding the reality of such things. To walk with the Son of God to hear His words preached, to hear Him pray, to see His miracles and His power. No day was an ordinary day for those who walked with Christ as He walked amongst men. Every day brought an extraordinary experience. Yet on that very eve of His crucifixion, as soon as the door to that upper chamber was closed to the world, and Christ was alone with His disciples, the next few hours would truly prove to be life-changing for them all. The next few hours would be monumental. Unlike anything they'd experienced in the past two or three years while walking with Christ. Shut alone in this upper chamber, alone with Christ. Things would be spoken of and things would be revealed that they never knew before. A new commandment would be given that they never heard before of loving one another as Christ loved them. Christ would humbly wash their feet. He would speak of a comforter coming that would comfort them in all their trials. He would tell them of the tribulation waiting them in the world, but be of good cheer, for he is with them. And then, of course, last but not least, and there's many more, there would be that 17th chapter where they and we would have the joy and the blessing and the privilege of seeing and hearing and reading the words of the Son of God as he opens his heart up to the Father on our behalf. It would be an amazing evening one they would never forget, and one which would forever change their lives. Unknown by all but Christ, who knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world under the Father, they all gathered together in this upper chamber, unaware how the next few hours should forever change their lives. For though every moment... Every day they spent with Christ was certainly extraordinary and remarkable. 
on this night behind closed doors and alone with Christ, like I said, truths would be revealed and hearts exposed in a manner like none other they had ever witnessed before. Things would happen behind these closed doors the world would be unaware of. Yet it was meant to be so. And yet, dearly beloved, so it must be in the life of every true believer. Listen to me. From 32 years, the first time I preached this, listen to me. I understand people place a lot of emphasis upon bare knowledge, but I'm telling you, there's nothing like living and experiencing the truth of God for years and being able to pass that on to others to say, I'm here to tell you as a witness, this is true what Christ speaks. I've seen it over 32 years. I've experienced it. I've fallen short of it, but I've also loved it. But so is it true in the life of every true believer. For though we enjoy the presence of Christ in our daily lives, in our service to Him and others, and in public worship, there must be times, dearly beloved, when we seek secret, private, and quiet fellowship with Christ. Like the upper chamber, we must learn to close the doors of the world and spend some quiet, alone time with Christ. For there He will reveal Himself like no other place. Don't misunderstand me. There's a place for public worship. There's a place for private devotion. There's a place for a public service. But, beloved, we must never neglect those secret times that we must spend with Christ alone. A time and a place where we can pour our hearts out to Christ. That we can allow ourselves to be examined by the Holy Spirit of God and by the truth of God. And that we can have the same spirit as the psalmist who said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. The psalmist in 91 said, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. He that dwelleth, not temporarily visits, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. Every child of God gazes into the inner sanctuary. If you're a true child of God, you have at one time or another gazed into this inner sanctuary, this secret place of the Most High, yet not all diligently seek to dwell there. How much diligence do we give in seeking the Lord privately, secretly, alone? When the Lord was speaking about prayer in the Gospels, He told His disciples to enter into their closet and pray secretly to their Father in Heaven who reward thee openly. How many times do we find Christ leaving the disciples in the multitude and going alone to pray, sometimes all night. If Christ had a need to pray privately with the Father, how much more do we of mortal flesh and blood? 
when we forsake those private times with Christ, we grow spiritually weak and unable to live for Christ in this world. There are many that run into it in times of affliction. They may occasionally approach it, but if we give not diligence to dwell, the psalmist says, we shall know little of the blessings of abiding under the shadow of the Almighty. Abiding under the shadow. What, what amazing words. You dwell. If you dwell in the secret place, you know what it is to abide under the shadow. What is it to abide under the shadow of the Almighty? Oh, to know and to be assured of His protection and guidance. How many times in our life do we feel confused and afraid of what's happening? The circumstances and events of life change too rapidly. It only takes a phone call, a moment, a second, for something in our lives to change. We live in an ever-changing world, but our God is an unchanging God. And that's what the psalmist is speaking about. When we dwell in the secret place of the Most High, we learn the blessings of abiding under the shadow of the Almighty, that no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what comes upon us, we're in the shadow of the Almighty. And read the rest of that psalm and you'll see the blessings of it. You know, in the Old Testament, it was only the high priest, and that once a year, and that not without blood, who was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, where the glory of God was manifested. Everybody else was banished to the outer court, to outside. The only thing they could witness about what was going on in that Holy of Holies was the ringing of bells. You say, what do you mean? Well, they had bells on his robe. And many say for many reasons, but one was to make sure that he was still alive after the glory of God came. They could hear the bells. But can you imagine the sound of the bells, what they listened for outside? They didn't see what he saw. They didn't witness what he witnessed. The only thing they could hear was the bells. And oh, how those bells must have rang when the glory of God fell down upon the offering. And that priest began to praise God. And then all they had after that was the word of the priest, what he witnessed in the Holy of Holies. Beloved, we have it so much better by him. We have, one act, we have access by one spirit unto the Father. We don't have to listen to what somebody else has experienced. We don't have to walk in the shadow of what others have learned and known about Christ. We can know Christ our own, ourselves. And yet so many walk in the shadows of others. I love the Puritans. I love reading them. I love the Reformers. They encourage me. And they're good to read. Yet I don't want to live in, their, in, the, in the shadow of their experience. I want to live my own. I want to know Christ of my own. I don't want to re hear the bells ringing on their robes. I want to see the majesty and glory of Christ in my own life. I want to know the truth of God triumphing in my own life. I want to be able to say with those two disciples on that deserted road how our hearts did burn when he opened up the scriptures to us. That's why the significance of this upper chamber is so important to us. There are so many things revealed in this upper chamber that none of the other gospels ever reveal. 
Let us then, by the grace of God today, in preparation for taking of the Lord's Supper and remembering Him, let us humbly gaze into this upper chamber in hopes that our lives as well might be changed forever. Do you ever have that thought? Do you ever have that prayer? Do you ever have that desire when you not only read the Word of God, but especially when you sit under the preaching that my life might be changed forever? We live in such a heartless generation, a callous generation, one that walks and lives mechanically for Christ. Do we long and desire to be changed by the preaching of the Word of God? We long and desire to have a greater relationship with Christ and that Christ would manifest himself through the preaching that our hearts might be drawn to him in a fashion and manner like none other before. Oh, that we would pray such prayers on the night before our worship, on the morning before we gather, that God would manifest himself through the preaching of his word. <laughs> Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come. The scriptures want us to understand that Jesus knows. Before the hour of his crucifixion, before the hour of his pain and suffering and death, that when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Beloved, this first verse of chapter 13 is often overlooked or given very little attention because of the amazing events which follow it. Sometimes we're in such a rush, and I've said that before, we're in such a rush to get to the meat of the text. We forget that there's preparations, there's small things, bits and pieces, which amount to great significance. If we overlook them, we miss something vital. This first verse is very very important and vital for everything Christ is fixing to do in the next few hours. Because everything that follows after this verse, every word spoken by Christ after this one verse flows from the divine truth found in this first verse. This is without doubt a most amazing statement and declaration Christ's great love for his own. Listen to these words again. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world, he knew he's going to depart out of the world under the Father, having loved his own which were in the world. He's fixing to depart under the Father. But the Scriptures want us to know His heart is still on those who are in the world. His own. That's an amazing description of Christ's love for His people. For though He knew His department out of this world under the Father was near and certain, He would assure His own, which were still in or would remain in the world, that He loved them and that he loved them unto the end. Listen to this. This is amazing. It's as though Christ would say 
though I depart out of this world unto the Father, which is in the highest heaven. That seems like a long way away, doesn't it? I'm going unto the Father. I'm departing out of the world, but I do realize you're still in this same world. And I love you. But not only do I love you while you're in the world, I love you unto the end. Why is that so significant? It's significant not only because it shows and proves the great love Christ has for his own and will always have for his own, but it proves that Christ, listen to me, and I want to get to this before we do our Lord's Supper, it proves that Christ loves his own in spite of themselves. What do you mean under the end? What do you, what do you mean under the, under the end of what? Well, many could say under the end of this present life, on into eternity. But the reference is, I love you unto the end. Nothing will ever change my love for you. No matter what happens in this world that you're still in, and I'm departed from, you're still in it. No matter what happens, in spite of yourself, in spite of your circumstances, in spite of what you might do, in spite of your failures, your sins, your infirmities, your weaknesses, I will love you to the end. Nothing shall hinder that love I have for you. Nothing shall break it. Nothing shall separate you from the love I have for you while you're in this world. And into eternity we know, but while you're in this world. He makes the reference. He makes it significant. I'm departing out of the world. You're staying in it. But I want you to know while you're still in this world that I love my own. And I'll love you to the end. Nothing, nothing, nothing shall ever change that. Why is that significant? Well, what's going to happen in the next few hours? They're going to find out somebody's going to betray them. When he first says that, they all say to themselves, is it I? Nobody knew it was Judas. Only Christ did, but they all said, is it I? Am I going to betray Christ? Peter would deny him three times in the next few hours. The disciples would all forsake him. If you compare the Gospels, he says this in the midst of the disciples arguing amongst themselves who's going to be the greatest. Peter, you're going to deny me. You're all going to forsake me. Someone's going to betray me. I'm going to turn over into the hand of sinners. All will leave me alone except the Father. But that's not going to change my love for you. I'm still going to love you unto the end. That's what he wants to say in the very beginning of everything that's fixing to happen. I will love you unto the end. In spite of yourself, I will love you. How do you know that? Well, let Scripture speak for itself. You remember Peter denied the Lord? Three times in John 21 when the Lord meets him up for the third time. After the resurrection, what's the question he asked Peter? Simon Peter, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? I'm getting ahead of myself. But why did he ask Peter if he loved Christ? Wouldn't you think Christ would say, Peter, you think I still love you after what you did to me? He didn't say that. Because that was no question. My love for you is no question. I'll always love you. 
Yeah, but I denied you three times. Doesn't matter. I'll still love you because you're mine. <clears throat> question is, do you love me? How much do you love me? The question is never, do I still love you? But do you love me? Beloved, the question when we fail is never if Christ loves us. It is if do we love Christ? Nothing changes Christ's love for us. Nothing. It's hard for us to grasp that kind of love because we live in a world where we love others in accordance to how they treat us and how they love us. It's hard for us to comprehend that kind of love. And we do. We cherish. We fellowship. We uh, abide with those who are like-minded with us, that like us, that, you know, we don't abide with those who don't like us. If anybody could find fault with all the disciples, surely it was Christ. He could find a reason to justify why he didn't want to fellowship with them anymore, don't you think? He knew their hearts. And yet he says, I love you unto the end in spite of yourself. In spite of everything that happens, I'm telling you, I will love you unto the end. Having loved his own which were in the world. In the world you shall have tribulation. You shall be hated. You shall be persecuted and afflicted. You shall fall, be tempted. You'll fail. You'll even sin. All this while you are in the world. But I have loved you and will love you unto the end. You see the balance of that? Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. I have loved you and will always love you. I think for the Christian, sometimes this is the hardest thing to grasp by faith. Because we so often feel unworthy of such love. How could you love me? Condemned, unclean. How could Christ love me in all my failures and weaknesses? And a lot of that's due because humans treat us like that. We treat each other like that. When someone fails us, when someone, when we fail someone else, their love and care for us diminishes. I've learned as a pastor when I, uh, when I go to a church, some of the churches I started, many Christians that kind of speak the loudest about enjoying the services and enjoying the preaching and many of those, not all, but many of those who speak the loudest about their adoration for what's what the preacher is doing, you're usually the first to, to leave. Or the first to find something that they're disappointed in and, and the preacher and they leave. I liked what the old Puritan said. I think it was Jern and uh, uh, Owens when he talked about the verse in Proverbs that said, let another man praise thee, not your own lips. Uh, John Owens says, let that man be wise enough to keep his mouth closed. <laughs> we believe that about God because people treat us that way. We treat people that way. One moment we're loving them and cherishing them and thankful for them and something happens, something goes away, and boom. The relationship's over. It's gone. People don't talk. People don't fellowship. Oh, this is rampant among Christianity. Sadly. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But yet, you know, after pondering this past week, I thought, Lord, with all the divisions and schisms we have in the world today amongst Christians, what's it going to be like in heaven? How are you going to get everybody together? Because everybody believes they're right and everybody else is wrong. How's that going to work? 
Down here, it's like, oh, I'm right. <laughs> How's that going to work? And I mean true believers, Christians that believe in the doctrines of grace, Christians that are united when it comes to doctrine, yet when it comes to fellowship, they have the most difficult of times. Reconciliation? Oh, that's a strange word amongst many Christians. And yet it's a biblical term and one which we should often seek seven times 70 a day. And yet we don't practice it. We don't show it. What's going to happen in heaven when we all get to heaven? I think we'll all be ashamed. I said all be ashamed. He loved them unto the end. Before this evening was over, they would all question themselves if one of them was a betrayer. Peter would deny Christ thrice. All the disciples would desert him. And their hearts would be troubled. John 14.1, let not your hearts be troubled. Yet from this very first verse, Christ would have them to know and to be assured that he has loved them and will love them unto the end. What I'm fixing to do, what's fixing to happen, I want you to remember this first verse. I want you to remember this. I'm departing unto the Father out of this world. You're going to remain in the world, but I love you because you're my own, and I will love you unto the end. Now let me tell you what's going to happen. But it won't change my love for you. No matter how much they failed him or fall, he says he loves them unto the end. Is there anything Christ does not already know about us? Our weaknesses, our failures, our sins, our infirmities. Is there anything he doesn't know about us? Nothing. This verse is said in the light that Christ knows all things. When Jesus knew that his hour was come, Yeah, look in, in the light of this, look in the verse 31 of the same chapter, John 13. You know, Judas did spend a little time in the upper chamber. That, that's always amazed me. He, he was up there for a little while. Now, I'm not going to de debate the issue whether you partook of the Lord's Supper. You can go in both directions. People have debated over that a long time. I'm not going to waste time on that debate, but he was there for a while. But you know, 31 doesn't happen until Satan's gone. He said, he then, having received the sop, went out immediately, and it was night. Judas is now departed. Now look what Christ does. Look what Christ says when Judas is gone. Therefore, when he was gone out, Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify in him himself and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say unto you, you can't come to where I'm going right now. Now watch this. A new commandment I give unto you. It's not new in respect of being never heard of before. It's just more emphasis. That's what that means. I'm putting more emphasis on this. We've always been commanded to love one another. 
in the Ten Commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. But Christ says, I'm putting more emphasis on this one. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another, will have love one to another. Now, he says that after Judas is gone. Judas wasn't going to have any part of that. The love between Christians is something that Christ revealed unto Christians. Judas would not be there. No Judases in this. What's he saying? Well, in verse 1, he says, I've loved my own, which is in the world. I love you in the man. He said, now love one another as I've loved you. Uh, you. You know, this commandment is rarely fulfilled and has rarely been fulfilled throughout every generation. You know why? Because without Christ and the Holy Spirit, it's utterly impossible. And because we're too selfish. Christ says, I'll love you to the end, regardless of what happens to you. I know what's good. Christ knew. People justify why they don't fellowship and love other Christians. They justify it. Well, I can justify it. I just don't agree with their person. I don't agree with their temperament. I don't agree with the way they do things. Hopefully it's not doctrine, because that's one reason to separate. But I mean, because I just don't agree with the way they Christ says, I've loved you to the end. Peter, I know who you are. I know you're going to deny me. I know you're all going to forsake me. I know Judas is going to betray me. That's a different situation. He's of Satan. I know you better than you know yourself. If anybody could justify not fellowshipping with anybody, it would be Christ. And he has just reason to. Yet Christ says, I don't do that. I love you in spite of what you are. We're told to love one another in spite of what one another are. We can't do that. And my question is, why? Oh, everyone wants to speak about love. Everyone wants to speak about you need to love your neighbor and you need to show love towards others. But when it comes amongst Christians, do you know Christians sometimes can be the most severest and the most agonizing, agonizing and agonizing? antagonizing to one another than the lost could be to them? That should never be so. And I've always wondered for 32 years since I first preached on this text, why in 32 years it still continues to be one of the hardest, most difficult lessons for us to learn as Christians is to love one another as Christ loved us. Christ could justify why he didn't love us easily, and he didn't. He said, I'm loving you anyway, unto the end. Now he says, I want you to love one another as I've loved you. When we sin against Christ and we grieve the Holy Spirit of God, we sang the penitent psalm, 51. We sang two of those. I'm really loving them psalms. Man, I'm telling you, we flee to Christ and we beg Him. We weep. We cry. We moan. God, please forgive me. Wash me clean. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. O oh God, I pray you'd be not silent unto me, lest I go into the pit like other, other men. Lord, speak to me. Lord, re forgive me. Lord, help me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. We plead with God. But when it comes to one another in the same situation, we justify our being unreconcilable. Is that really how Christ loves us? Do you realize the standard 
this sets for God's people. Do you realize the standard Christ sets? It's far above anything we could ever of ourselves obtain. It's impossible. And yet Christ says it's a new commandment. This is what I command of you. You ever wonder in, in the world, they say, well, you can't, you can't command somebody to love somebody else. They've got to want to do it. Christ says, I'm not asking you if you want to do this. <laughs> I'm not asking you. I'm commanding you. What's it going to be like when in heaven when we all get to heaven? You need a little group here, a little group there, a little group here, a little group. Everybody's got their own little group, and everybody's right. Everybody's right. I'm telling you, if heaven was going to be the same way it is down here with Christians, I really wouldn't want to go. Eternal contention? <laughs> Now, don't misunderstand that statement. It's not going to be like that. That was just... There's not going to be eternal contention. All resolutions can be resolved, and I think we're all going to be ashamed before God. I think we're all going to be ashamed and contrite before God because we did not fulfill that new commandment. We did not love one another as Christ loved us. We loved one another as we chose to. I believe the closest we shall ever get to this commandment is to imitate that love of Christ for us. For to love one another as Christ loved us, we need to truly know more about his love for us. Which kind of tells me this. If we're not loving one another as Christ loved us, we sure don't know much about Christ's love for us as much as we say we do. Think about it. He didn't say love one another. He said love one another as I have loved you. In other words, I can only love another brother and sister as much as I know Christ loves me. So uh, evidently, we don't know a lot about Christ's love to us if we're not loving one another. You follow my point in that? We're not being truthful and honest with ourselves. This is a love, dearly beloved, more higher or higher and more intense than any mortal man could ever achieve on his own. It's impossible for do us it's impossible for us to do it on our own. We can't do that. We, there's too much self, too much pride in ourselves. We can't do it of ourselves. So how do we achieve that? How do we reach for that goal? How do we strive to fulfill that new commandment? Find out how much Christ loves you. Well, I know that. No. Find out how much Christ loves you. It's the only way to be able to look at somebody who would deny you three times forsake you in the hour that you need them, 
Could you not stay awake with me for one hour? That's the only way that we can look at anybody who's done anything to us or we to them and say, you know what, in spite of everything that you've done or I've done, in spite of everything that you are, I can truly say I still love you. Don't give me that, oh, I love you and walk on the other side of the street every time you see me. That's hypocrisy. The only way we can do that is if we know, truly know, the love of Christ for us. Because if we know the Christ, if we know the love of Christ for us and we know our own hearts, oh, and we know our own hearts, then we know there's, with that kind of love, we can love anybody else. Because if Christ can love me, if he can love me the way I am, surely I can love others the way they are. Because nobody is more unfaithful nor vile more unworthy of Christ's love than me. Therefore, I can love you. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas... Iscariot summoned son to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things under his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. Look at that. The verses exalt Christ to the highest. And here he is. He's come from God. He's going to God. He knows all things. What's the next thing he does? He lays down his garments, wraps a towel, and begins to humbly wash the disciples' feet. He lays down his glory and becomes flesh. And humbly washes the disciples' feet. That was the state of the lowest humility, was to wash somebody's feet. That's why Peter said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Oh, Peter, if I wash not your feet, you have none of me. Oh, oh, Lord, then wash all of me. No, your feet is sufficient, Peter. You can wash yourself. He humbly submits himself and washes the disciples' feet. Oh, I'm telling you, Christ loves us unto the end. Beloved, no matter what happens, no matter how much you fail, how much we fail, we fall, no no matter how often we're asking the same forgiveness, no matter what happens, we've got to be assured in our hearts in God's word that he will love us unto the end. He knew us when he saved us. He knew us before we were even born. He knows everything we're going to do. He's not taken by surprise. We look at our children when they do something foolish, and we go, I can't believe you did that. Christ looks at us and says, I know you're going to do that. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Oh, Lord, I'll never. Peter, I'm telling you, you're going to deny me three times. Lord, though they all forsake me, Peter, you're going to deny me. But I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. And when you've been converted, when you've been strengthened, strengthen your brethren. I knew you would, Peter. I knew you disciples would forsake me. I knew all of that. But I still loved you under the end. What an amazing love. May God help us to grasp more of Christ's love for us because we'll never be able to fulfill or even seek to fulfill this new commandment 
of loving one another until we know what it is to be loved by Christ. And then we can. May this help us in preparation of the Lord's Supper to remember him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you how it exposes the secret things of our hearts and our minds. Lord, it reveals unto us things that, Lord, we would not have seen ourselves. Lord, we seek so often to hide things, sometimes subconsciously, sometimes purposely. Yet, Lord, the light of thy word reaches down in the depths of our hearts and draws up sometimes the greatest draws so that it might be burned away so that we might know more of Christ and have little of our own left. Father, I pray that, God, you would help us here at Reformed Baptist Church in this day and age when it seems like everyone justifies the reason for separation and divisions and schisms. Help us, dear God, I pray that we would ever seek to love one another as Christ loved us so that we might glorify you in all things. Father, I pray now that you bless this time of the Lord's Supper, for we ask it in Christ's name we pray. Amen.